0: Word of the Lord, this is God's Word. It was written a long time ago, but it was written for you today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam and Rehoboam the father of Abijah and Abijah the father of Asaph and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram and Joram the father of Uzziah Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel. The father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eluid, and Eluid, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father in heaven, we do ask your blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the scriptures. And these are your words, not ours. And so we ask that you would speak as you have in the past. And you do so in the present. May your spirit illumine our minds, the scriptures to our minds that we might understand and our hearts that we might believe for Christ's sake. Amen. 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 Uh. New pulpit needs to have a shelf right there, just saying. When it happens. If you've listened to my preaching long enough, you know I am a sucker, I mean a sucker for documentaries. I love them, Um, particularly the the sciency, the more sciency they are, uh, the more I enjoy them. And this week I have been in the bed with a uh, spectacular respiratory cold and in the evenings it has been documentary central in the Dixon home. Uh, last night was the uh, documentary on the giant octopus, amazing creature. These things are like 60 pounds and 30 feet across are fantastic. Watching how God has made these just spectacular creatures. And a couple of nights ago, it was the jellyfish, which is intriguing. Again, weird things that you learn watching documentaries, which is why I like them. The jellyfish is actually the fastest animal in nature. Yeah, everybody's like, what? They don't, they don't even move. How do they do that? Yeah. Uh, the sting, their sting is the fastest documented movement by a living thing in nature. When you trip the little hair and the, uh, the nanocyst injects its venom, it's the fastest thing ever documented. Like, the, the, the thing is like millions of frames per second in order to be able to watch it. Kind of speed is crazy. You'd never think that. They're amazing things, amazing creatures. Um, Nikki's been mocking me actually cause I've been in sea creature land and we've been watching all of the amazing things of the deep and the, the things that God has designed. But the interesting one was, I guess it was last week was watching the one on, uh, the tomb of Jesus Christ or what they think is the tomb in Jerusalem. You know, supposedly in antiquity, Jesus, obviously he lives, he dies, he's resurrected and uh, the church recognizing this is kind of something special. I mean, traditionally people don't rise from the dead until the end of time, but here's someone who's doing it under his own power now and they save the tomb in theory. And uh, build this kind of special marble edifice around it, and then build a giant, you know, kind of shrine around that, and then build a gianter church around that, and then build, you know, and this kind of just massive, sprawling, you know, complex now. And uh, intriguing, this is where they think, okay, yeah, great, documentary is like, woo, special. But architecturally, it's interesting because the gigantic marble edifice around the supposed tomb of Jesus is crumbling. It was badly built, poorly constructed, they didn't shore up the seams, there's water that's been seeping through it, and with all of the millions of people that go through it every year, they don't know who the poor souls are going to be that get killed when it collapses on them. And so they have this, uh, I think it was a German engineering firm come in and try to figure out how to restore uh, the marble edifice around the supposed tomb of Jesus. And the documentary is just fascinating because it's trying to be respectful of Christ, but you can tell it's like a History Channel documentary type thing. And they don't really believe who he is. And so you kind of have this lingering question. The whole documentary is about how are they going to fix the tomb? But the real question is, what does the tomb teach us about the man we do not know? I mean, that's the real issue. What does the tomb teach us about the man we do not know? And uh, the problem ends up being so great, they actually have to take kind of the marble edifice apart and actually open uh, the sealed vault that's been sealed since like 300 A.D., And the documentary is like, this is National Geographic. This is the first time this has been ever viewed since like 300. And we're going to put it on camera so everybody can watch it. It's super captivating. But it's interesting, the lingering question they leave you with is not, Jesus is amazing. The big thing is, who is he? I mean, did did he raise from the dead? They don't ever state it. They leave it in, in, kind of interrogative. Was this the place where Jesus lived? Was this the place where Jesus died? Is this the place? What, what do we learn? Ooh, there's a cross carved on it. Was that the Templars? And it's just hysterical as it wrestles with, who is Jesus? The intriguing thing is that they're looking at a tomb to try to find out about the living. How about look at the story? Look at what he himself wrote. Look at his words. Look at what he's told about himself. Look at the autobiography instead of looking at a place of death. A slab sealed away for a thousand years. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is who he tells us he is. Let's go to actual uh, proper useful place of information. Documentary is not that great. I don't recommend watching it. It was intriguing and I watched it largely for the sermon illustration. (laughs) You see, Matthew begins by writing here, this book is designed to be written to Jews. I mean, he's writing explicitly to Jews, and he's writing in such a way that everybody could kind of tell, he's trying to answer the same question that National Geographic is answering. They're trying to answer the question, well, what do we know about Jesus? And he's answering the same question, what do we know about Jesus? Jesus. They're answering it to a worldwide audience and Matthew is interestingly answering it not to a worldwide audience only, but primarily to the Jews. This Jesus that has upset the entire world, this Jesus who has raised himself from the dead, which by the way, most people don't do, is something totally unique. What do we do with this Jesus? And so Matthew begins, Al, anywhere, he begins in the place that any Jew would want to begin. And you can tell most of us are Gentiles. Because where's the last place most of us are going to begin? With the genealogy. I mean, most of us, were are classic Americans. Right? We're going to begin with, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> Where, it's interesting, actually, if you think about it, modern, Amer- American, modern American evangelistic schemes begin with what? My own personal experience. It's actually not even what Jesus did back then. It's what he's doing right now to me. What have you done for me lately? It's really interesting. But Matthew begins where the Jews would want to begin. What is the pedigree of the Lord Jesus? What is this man? What's his history? What's his lineage? What's his background? Let's find out why he's so special. Those that lived a long time ago in the South probably had very similar types of experience. Who's your kin? Who's your kin? Who are you related to? Let's find out your meaning and your significance from there. And Matthew tells the story kind of from the very beginning, identifying his agenda. Verse 1, I'm going to start with telling you the genealogy of Jesus. I'm going to just go ahead and tip my hand why I'm telling you. I'm going to tell you the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why? Why? Because he is Jew of Jews. His lineage is right. It's true. In fact, actually, his lineage is such that he is actually like the king of the Jews. I mean, not like in the sense of he only descended from heaven. But like if you were to trace the royal family tree, the guy who should have been sitting on the throne was Joseph and Mary's son. That's his lineage. He is the king of the Jews. And here Matthew walks us through that. He starts back at the beginning, not at Adam, where Luke starts or ends really, but starts where the Jews would find their meaning. Let's go back to Abraham and let's look at the lineage of Abraham. Boom, 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 boom. All right, now let's look at the lineage of David. Boom, 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 boom. Now let's look at the more modern lineage after the deportation to Babylon. Boom, 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 till we get to verse 17. Verses 1 and 17, I guess in many ways forming bookends to the genealogy. Answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, according to this section, this part of Matthew's agenda, Jesus is the son of David. His genealogy explains it. Look, he's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Tamar, well, Perez and Tamar married. Hezron, Ram, Amminadab, you go through the whole list again. But he's, look, you can trace the line. Trace the line directly from Abraham to David. Trace the line directly from David to Jeconiah and Zerubbabel, and the line directly from Zubbabel to Joseph. But there's one interesting thing here in this regard is that there is actually a gap that's mentioned. In fact, there's a number of gaps that he doesn't mention, but one that is specifically mentioned. Verse 15, Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. The father of Jesus? Interesting, that's not what it says, is it? No, instead, actually, uh, it's the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. This is the one called the Christ, who is called the Christ. You see, from the very beginning, what Matthew is attempting to do is to say, look, even though (laughs) you're going to get a different genealogy in Luke, that's going to be his biological genealogy. Here in Matthew, you're going to get the genealogy of his stepfather. His lineage is that of the King of David. He's the king of the Jews, so that when you hear of David's greater son, you hear of all of the promises of d- to given to David of his lineage that would sit on the throne forever. This son is the son of David. In fact, actually, most commentaries, conservative commentaries at least, would say verse 17 is the big linchpin to this argument, and it's going to be a bit more technical than I normally am in the pulpit. I'm normally a globalist in the pulpit and not a particularist, but here you have to have a little bit of an argument. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14. Which we as Gentile Westerners are like, okay, that's neat and all. I mean, your math is a little wonky. The numbers don't quite add up, but okay, fine, whatever. Neat. You've probably read that a hundred times. And if I had to press you on it, I bet you maybe only three or four of us in the room would have even remembered that he does this. But part of it's because he's arguing, remember, to Jews. And the Jews think a little bit differently than we do. And one of the things that is a very important and significant thing to the Jews are numbers. And the numbers here become a bit important. Fourteen, fourteen, fourteen. When you think, well, okay, I mean, that's neat and all, but fourteen's not a number I remember from the Bible. I mean, I know three is important. We think of that for the Trinity. Okay, that's good. And twelve is important. I think of that for the tribes. But fourteen... And interestingly, again, most modern commentators would say uh, what he's su- intentionally doing here is calling attention to 14 so that you do kind of have to think about it and go, well, why is it 14, 14, 14? Well, because it's not 14, 14, 14. Ultimately, it's sevens. Remember, seven is a significant number. It's wholesome, it's totality, it's fullness. Seven, 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 seven. See that? 14, 14, 14, seven, 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 seven. Okay. Who cares? Again, meet Gentiles in the room. So what? Why are you wasting sermon time on this? Because if you do the math again, remember, think seven is significant. It's the whole number. It's the full number. It's it's totality. He has six groupings of seven and then Jesus. You see, what he's doing, even in his math from the very beginning, is saying, look, all of Judaism has been incomplete until one thing shows up. We've had six groupings of seven. Six is that incomplete number, the, the not full number, the not quite right, the wrong, which is why you get in Revelation, the mark of the beast, 666, it's incomplete, incomplete or incompletest. It's the wrongest number. And what Matthew is doing here is to say, look, we have six groupings of seven. It's almost right. We need the seventh seven. And who is the seventh seven? It's Christ. This one Jesus is the one that the Jews have been waiting for all along. He is David's son. He is of the lineage of David. He's the king of the Jews. He is the fulfillment of all of those promises. I told you that would be more technical than I normally do. And the result of this is that when you go back and you read your Old Testament, which, by the way, you absolutely should, and you find all of the promises that are given to David, And given to the Jews, you can see from Matthew's argument here that all of them are incomplete until one person shows up. Until Christ. He is the the completion of Israel. He's the completion of God's plan. He is the fulfillment of it all. That's why we sing in our Christmas hymns all of the Christmas incarnation hymns that we sing. I mean, that's really what they are, incarnation hymns. They're all written from the Old Testament. You ever notice that? David's greater son. I mean, the one we sang today. We read Psalm 24 and then we sang it. Why? Why are the Christmas songs from the Old Testament? Because Christ is the fulfillment of them all. David's greater son. The one who would surpass him. So Matthew begins by introducing this. Who is Jesus? Let's let's answer the question first off. Uh, Who is Jesus? And he's going to give us parts and pieces to this. So first part and piece is he is the totality of Judaism. All that the Old Testament and Judaism and Jews were supposed to be, all of it summed up, boiled down in supreme par excellence, it is Christ. He is the Old Testament, in essence, incarnate. All of the promises that pointed to something, they're in Christ. All of those, uh, the emphasis on the king, it's in Christ. All of that promise given to David we have in 2 Samuel 7 and other places, It, it all is fulfilled in him. He is the ultimate Jew. But now he continues and begins to round out that definition. You see, the first part of the definition is to say, look, he is all of the person, the, the human, that anybody could ever hope to be. He's human among humans. He's king among kings. He's all that Israel was supposed to be. But now, something different is introduced. The, the second half of the equation Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So now we have the the, uh, lingering genealogy in the background, but now is introduced the actual narrative. When Mary and Joseph were betrothed, engaged, they're not supposed to be active in any way in terms of marital intimacy, and they are not. And she gets pregnant, which Joseph would have been highly suspicious of. You know how that happens in every case but one. Know what it means for her. And so he, being a good man, decides, you know what? Uh, Just because she has either been taken advantage of or been uh, um, unfaithful either way, uh, I'll just put her away quietly. Instead of making a big stink about it and ruin her life forever, I'll just get rid of her quietly and we'll just act like none of this ever happened. And then the dream happens. And this dream is one of those, uh, this is part of the story, the Christmas story, that does not get talked about nearly enough. Because you remember, every time the angels appear, there's always one primary human response. Abject terror. Which is why when they begin speaking, almost always the first words out of their mouth are, don't be afraid. Because the person in front of them is absolutely terrified. And again, remember, the way that we have them described in the Old Testament, they're creatures of fire. They're covered in wings, the wings cover their bodies, cover their faces, they they fly, they're creatures of just pure beauty, but at the same time, just absolute terror. Which is why, again, everybody sees them, they lose their mind. Joseph, on the other hand, gets the the pleasantry of meeting this in a dream. Can't run away. (laughs) Can't get away from it, it's inside his head, so to speak. And while he is asleep, the angel of the Lord appears to him. probably his actual son here, or stepson uh, in the form of this, and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear now, not the angel, the angel of the Lord, but do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why? Because the one that has conceived this child is not another man. It's not that she's been either taken advantage of or been unfaithful. It is instead God has provided the child. She's going to bear a son. You're going to call his name Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins. That's what the name means. And oh yeah, by the way, he's the fulfillment of one of the greatest prophecies of the entire Old Testament, that God will be with his people. (laughs) And you see the second half of the story becomes kind of comes clear into view and you get to see both aspects to his nature. He's Jew of Jews, that's highlighting his humanity. Look, he's the king, he's the, the, the one of the proper lineage. You think British royalty, right? You know, the little babies that are born, you're like, oh, that's going to be the next king of England eventually. Jesus is born, he's, no, he's the king of the Jews, he's human amongst humans, but now we find out that he's also something entirely different. He's fully man, but now we see he's fully God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he's conceived for a specific purpose, to save his people from their sins and to fulfill all of the prophecies. The Old Testament, again, both coming into clarity. So that we can have a, a National Geographic documentary that's saying let's look at the tomb let's let's find out who Jesus is and we have it explained clearly in the scriptures who is Jesus well he's a man who was born of human lineage we have it this human lineage would make him the king of the Jews it would make him royalty interestingly he was born poor This one was born in such a way and in such a time and in such a fashion as to show just his birth was something special. Something unique. This child would be different, but not just that. He's all kinds of special human, but he's something else as well. He's God. Conceived by the Spirit, born for the purpose of salvation, born for the purpose of God being with us. And again, that is the promise that we as Westerners don't understand. We as Westerners, we've been raised, most of us, in uh, evangelical culture as such, and we've been taught, look, Jesus lives in your heart all the time. Imprecise language, the Spirit lives within you, but okay, we can live with that. When you think about Joseph and the Jews that would have had to confront that, think about what it means that God would be with you. What are they looking around at? When they walk outside, what do they see? They see Rome. They see Jews being oppressed. They see worship corrupted. They see the law of God being violated. They see what would have been marked as God leaving his people. I mean, think about think about what happens to them. They're sent off into captivity. They come back, they build a temple, and God never shows up in it. And you would kind of have like a dot, dot, dot. Well, did he ever show up at all? And then, oh, yeah, by the way, he stops giving books of the Bible, and we don't even know anything after that. And now in this child, he's saying, look, look, Rome, Pfft, Rome. 400 years of silence, Pfft, 400 years of silence. Look, God is here. And he's going to be with you, and he's going to be with you in the form of your son, for he is God himself. You see, you know all of these things. It's part of why Christmas sermons are absolutely terrible to preach. I don't know if you will know this, every pastor ever dreads preaching Christmas sermons. You all may not know that. All of my friends that actually do preach them every year, they hate them. Uh, and the reason is because everybody already knows everything. And if you've been in a church for a long time, they've already heard all of your good points. And so you end up in a situation like this where you sit and go, well, preacher, I know that. I agree with all those things. Amen. Glory, hallelujah. I'm glad you do. If you don't agree with it, we should probably have a conversation because that's the bigger issue. The question then becomes, well, what do we do with application? We recognize that Jesus is man, 100%, and God, 100%. He's always been God. He's not always been man. That's fun to think about. He now will continue to be God and forever will continue to be man. Can't take that away. The challenge becomes, though, how do we, how do we wrestle through this? What do we do to apply it? And I would say a couple of key significant points. First is to be reminded that God's plan is unbelievably patient. I love how Matthew introduces the arrival of the Messiah with a genealogy that takes place over thousands of years. As if the Jews didn't understand. Oh yeah, by the way, God works very slowly at times. I mean, it's not slowly by his standards, but it feels slowly by ours. We talked about this, the Bible study this Thursday, and we'll talk about it this coming Thursday in the evening. To never mistake God's patience for forgetfulness to never mistake his patience for inactivity. You see, Matthew highlights this even with the gigantically long lineage. Oh yeah, by the way, Jesus shows up. But think about how long it took to get there. It's not because God wasn't working. It was that he was working in times different than ours. And maybe that's a lesson that we need to remember today. Some of us in here, I'm sure, are struggling. And I know some of us, I'm sure, are struggling and want it to be fixed right now. In fact, some of us have been struggling, and we've wanted it to be fixed like yesterday, and we're really actually starting to get a little bit peevish that it hasn't been corrected since. And and I, I don't mean to belittle your suffering in any way, but if God was patient enough to use this amount of time to bring about the most important event inside creation, he might be willing to be patient to deal with your suffering too. If he was willing to take generation after generation after generation to present his son, might be willing to take some time to resolve your situation for his perfect purposes. And secondly, and this is, I would say, maybe the bigger point that is a challenge is uh, to be reminded, which again, you all already know, but to be reminded that if he is who he says he is, it demands total obedience You see this is the part that the documentary was my favorite was it was kind of lingering in the background of who is Jesus without ever actually dealing with this should it impact my life at all because they understand that if Jesus is who he says he is if he's who Matthew says he is and Mark and Luke and John and all of the other authors of scripture Isaiah Jeremiah and others then he deserves total obedience because he's God I love that it actually notes that when Joseph woke up from the sleep. uh, Guess what? He obeyed. And this is one of those the grammar kind of articulates. He obeyed quickly. Not the time to lollygag. It's not the time to kind of meander. It's not the time to do as children do when you say go clean your room. And an hour later you walk in and they're playing with the Legos. I'm cleaning them as they, you know, move together into the bucket. And I would suggest sometimes maybe it's appropriate that we think about what our obedience looks like. Do we take the person and work of Christ so for granted that we're like, look, I've been forgiven. Now do I really have to worry about obedience? And do we find ourselves a lot like our children saying, I know God, I know you told me to do X, Y, and Z, but instead I'm playing with my Legos as I make them into the bucket. And the reality of the matter is I suspect that if we're going to be honest, that describes our lives a bit more than we might be comfortable with. And it would be appropriate that we, in this time of year, and a time where I would say the pagans actually encourage us to remember Jesus. It's a great gift from the pagans to remind us. Think about who Jesus is. Maybe it'd be appropriate that we ourselves take a little time to consider our own heart so that we might repent for the things that we need to repent of and believe in him who is God with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We ask for your blessing upon it, that we might believe, that we might repent, we might obey, and accordingly might flourish. Give us your help, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.